Promo Kitchen is a nonprofit organization committed to the advancement of the promotional products industry through education and mentorship. This edition of the PK Podcast was supported by Gemline. Gemline keeps you on trend, on time, and on budget with four product launches a year and inspiring seasonal trends. They offer a broad selection of products to fit any budget. Their brand partnerships with Isaac Mizrahi, Bobble, Brookstone, Igloo, Moleskin, Lamy, and Zebra provide more exciting branding solutions than ever before. Please be sure to visit their website at gemline.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Promo Kitchen Podcast. If you are a new listener, the PK Podcast is a community-inspired conversation featuring guest suppliers, distributors, and service providers discussing insights into the $20 billion promotional products business. My name is Mark Graham, CEO of Common Skew, and I'm joined by fellow chef Robert Fiveash, president of Brand Fuel Promotions. This is, in fact, Robert's first time in the co-pilot seat with me on this podcast today, so we'll try to go easy on him. But enough about Robert. Let's talk about today's guest. While distributors and suppliers represent the largest segment of the promotional products industry, it's the consultants and business advisors who often work behind the scenes to make sure the industry continues to thrive. In today's episode, we wanted to explore the industry from the vantage point of one of the most experienced consultants around. David Blaze. David is an entrepreneur, author, and business consultant with more than 25 years experience in direct marketing and advertising. He has been involved in the promotional products industry since 1988 as a sales representative, sales manager, marketing manager, business owner, sales trainer, and coach. He is the author of Getting Started, How to Launch a Wildly Successful Career in Promotional Product Sales, Top Secrets of Customer Acquisition, and he is the co-author of The Power of Promotional Products. Since 2001, David has been a popular speaker and trainer at all major industry shows. He has conducted numerous education events for ASI, PPAI, SAGNI, and PPPC. He is the co-founder of Promo Academy and SmartEQP.com. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome you to the show, David. Thank you so much, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, super exciting. The honor is certainly all ours. Why don't we start off with an easy one for you, David? I'm curious as to why it is that you decided, or maybe how you decided, to pursue the consulting path in the promotional products industry. Well, I don't know that I really decided to pursue it. (laughs) It was really more a matter of I was operating in the promotional products industry. I had my own business for a period of about 10 years, and I'm an entrepreneur at heart. So over the course of those 10 years, I was dabbling in other things. I had a promotional products business. I also had a retail mail-order catalog on the side, which was unrelated to promotional product sales. In fact, it was science fiction collectibles, as strange as that sounds. Yeah. And so basically what ended up happening is that I was operating my promotional products business. I had this catalog business on the side, which actually came about as a result of the fact that I was selling promotional items related to some science fiction programs to television stations. So what ended up happening is both businesses started to grow, and I needed to place my attention on either both or I had to concentrate on just one. And about that time, I was fortunate enough to receive an offer. My general manager decided to make me an offer to buy my promotional products business, and so I was able to sell it. Mm. So I sold my promotional products business to focus my attention on growing and selling my catalog business. And when I did that, I had a a no-compete agreement that 
said you can't sell promotional products. And while I couldn't sell promotional products, I actually realized that I could teach other people how to sell promotional products. Yeah. And so prior to working in promotional products, I also had worked in radio from the time I was a teenager. And so I knew audio production. I was very passionate about sales and marketing, and I loved the promotional products industry. So I thought, okay, what if I were to put together those three interests, and what if I were to teach sales and marketing to promotional products people through a series of audio productions? Right. And that's how that got started. Right. And the year that that got started was when, David? Well, I sold my promotional products business in 1998 and recorded my first training program shortly thereafter. So that's when that portion of it started. I didn't really think of it. I didn't think of it at all as consulting at that point. I was right. thinking of it as selling an audio program. That's really how it started. So what I'm so fascinated by is here you are. You're, you're now in a consulting business advisor type role. And you've gone from one perspective when you were a distributor many years ago, and now you have been able to tap into the collective perspective of hundreds, if not thousands, of different distributor salespeople in your career. What is the one most common problem that your clients face, and what is the remedy for said problem? Okay, well, it depends on the client, obviously, but... I would say for solo businesses, it's that transition from being the business to managing, overseeing, and eventually owning a business that could potentially operate without you. Right. So in the early stages, it would be that. In larger businesses, it's really about attracting and retaining the right people. Right. And as I'm sure you know, a lot of the larger companies in our industry invest a lot of resources on recruiting new people more so than training the people they have. Right. Retention. Yeah. Right. Why is that? Not, not to go off on a tangent, but that's interesting you say that because I've heard other people say that as well. This whole idea of the disconnect between the recruiting focus and investing in them once they've actually started. Why do you think that is? Well, maybe they feel it's easier. Yeah. <laughs> if you're investing in selling someone on the idea of joining your organization, it's more like a one-time sale, whereas right. training is an ongoing event, and right. it's harder. And some people just don't like to do it, and some people don't like to pay for it. <laughs> so if you don't like to pay for it and you don't like to do it, then it doesn't get done. Right. If you don't like to do it, but you're willing to pay for it, you can actually get it done and, and get it done very well. Right. But for many, I think it's just they feel that it's easier. And even with smaller businesses, when I'm dealing with smaller distributors and they talk about wanting to hire salespeople, they talk first about the idea of trying to find people who are already in the industry. And it really does become a game of, you know, I'm leaving here and I'm going there. And then someone else leaves from that place and goes somewhere else. Mm. And people are just sort of cycling around. And it doesn't really add anything to the industry. Right. Because basically the same volume of sales is being done. It's just where the sales are being processed. Right. And then for the knowledge of the people that are listening to the podcast, what is the breakdown? If you look at your business from a percentage perspective, are you working the majority of the time with the smaller distributor, either solo distributor, or they may have one or two sales reps, or are you primarily working with the larger franchise networks and the national accounts? No, we're primarily working with individuals. Now, it could be an individual that is a sales rep within one of the larger companies, and we do a lot of that. Right. There are a lot of individuals within a company that come to us for training and education. We do also work with some of the larger companies, but the bulk of it is really with independent distributors. 
So David, I'm going to jump in and just ask a couple questions at this point because it sounds like some of these smaller independents that you are referencing might be first-timers in the industry, somebody just starting out in the industry. So let me hit you with just a couple from that audience, which obviously is a, an audience for the promo kitchen as well. So there are so many supplier choices out there, literally thousands of supplier choices out there. For somebody just starting out, would you advocate that they stick with a large supplier that covers most or all of the categories, such as the Leeds or Big Norwood? Or would you advocate that they pick, say, a handful of key suppliers that handle each of the categories? Well, I like the idea of working with companies that are going to deliver consistently. And in some cases, in, in many cases perhaps, that is the larger supplier companies. But you want to make sure that they're larger supplier companies that have a consistent history of delivering. And so I think that's why in recent years, and it's maybe not even recent anymore, <laughs> it wasn't always like this. We used to uh, select suppliers just using paper, you know, catalogs and things like that. But now there are so many tools that distributors can use to be able to check out what other distributors are saying about the suppliers, and I think those tools are really important. You know, any of the industry, major industry search tools that provide that functionality are really essential, particularly for new distributors who don't know where to go. And what I encourage them to do is I say, well, you know, some people will use an industry search tool just to say, you know, look up cheap mugs, and they pull up the cheapest mug that comes up and they order it from that company, and that's generally not a good idea. But at least check out that company and see what is their history of being able to deliver that product consistently, on time, with an imprint that looks good, that doesn't rub off, and if there is a problem, they're going to be able to take your call or respond to your request, get it fixed, and, and resolve it well for your client. So sometimes that happens with the larger companies. In many cases, it does because they're set up to be able to do that. And in some cases, it might be someone who is a supplier, perhaps, who's just getting started but is really good at what they do and determined to do it well. Good deal. Well, I agree with you. I think the major industry search engines have done a much better job than perhaps they did earlier on at identifying the, the pros and cons of suppliers and, and making feedback that distributors give very obvious and very upfront at, at this point. So I applaud them for, for doing so. It's, it's much more helpful than it used to be. One other question for some of the newbies, and I, I will say that uh, this is one of those enigmas for both the experienced distributors and the new folks, the both dreaded and exalted RFP. When does it make sense to drop everything and tackle an RFP, and when does it not? Well, I'm really jaded when it comes to this stuff. So <laughs> I can imagine. For me, the answer is never, but it varies from person to person. There are some people who thrive on that. They are great at it. They love putting together RFPs. They love the thrill of the chase. They love crafting something that they think is going to win them the business. And if that's you, I applaud you. You know, Go do it. Knock yourself out. But for me, that was never a strength of mine. And I didn't realize that until I had done it a few times. <laughs> and I realized that what happens if you don't do it exactly right is that you either end up losing the business and wasting an enormous amount of time putting that together, or in some cases you get the business and you find out that you're doing way too much work for not enough money. And so it becomes almost a lose-lose. So the way I see it, the only way that you can really succeed at that is if you put together an RFP in a way that you set your pricing so that if you get the business, you're actually happy you got it. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> we had a situation in one of our mastermind discussion uh, groups. It was actually on a, at one of our uh, inner circle teleconferences where one of our inner circle members said, 
I had a situation where I, uh, you know, I'm kind of upset. I, I just got a $50,000 order. And, of course, I'm like, well, what's wrong with that? And he said, well, I only made $1,500 on the order. <laughs> and my response to that is, well, why did you take that order, mm. right? And what's the answer? You know, the answer is because I wanted the 1500 bucks. right? I mean, that's the answer you get. But what it doesn't take into consideration is, okay, if everything goes exactly right, you have the possibility of making 1500 bucks. If something goes wrong, you could potentially lose 48.5. So you do the risk-to-reward ratio, you do the risk-to-reward analysis, and you say, do I really want to do this? And even if everything does go right, how much time am I putting into that to make that $1,500? And if it takes a long time to put it together and a long time to do the research and put it all together and present it and wait for the, all the back and forth, if you divide out the number of hours you put in, you might find out that the kid who served you coffee at McDonald's this morning is actually making more on an hourly basis than you are. Yeah. It's not ideal. It's dated. And that doesn't even take into consideration whether you have any overhead. Like I'm assuming in that particular case, you're just talking about a guy who is working out of his or her house without any overhead. So all that they're really dealing with is just their time. But you imagine a brand fuel, Robert? If one of your reps came in and made $1,500 on a $50,000 order, I'm sure that they'd be out packing <laughs> before yeah, the end of the be day. A conversation for sure. Yeah. Be a conversation for sure. I, you know, a lot of it has to do with defining who you are and, and what you want to be as a company on a certain day and time, and the RFP comes in and, and very quickly forces you to change tactics and change who you want to be tomorrow without a whole lot of thought behind it. And I think that's one of the problems is you see the dollar signs, but you don't spend the time to figure out if it's going to take you to the place you really want to be. I have a question for you, Robert. I want to ask you something because I know that in your business at BrandFuel that RFPs and company store programs represent a portion of your business and that you guys are really good at that. And so taking, David, your comment about you being jaded and not feeling that RFPs are necessarily the greatest thing to get involved in, if we switch gears and look at you, Robert, you've clearly made a decision to embrace the RFP or embrace maybe the right kind of RFP. Can you add to the discussion in terms of providing some perspective for people that are listening to this that might be looking to understand how to successfully compete for that business when margins yeah. are, are a challenge? Yeah, you know, a lot of it obviously has to do with margins. And so you need to determine, as we, we mentioned, who you are and what you want to be. And, and obviously, your cost structure will determine what margins work for your specific company at that point in time. Mm. Um, but the other factor, I think, the two other factors really involved are, you know, what's going on in your business at that particular time. So I remember back maybe 10 years ago, we got an invitation to participate. And it's always, you know, it's kind of funny, an invitation, right? Um, an invitation to participate with a particular RFP. It was a Fortune 500 power company that was kind of in our backyard, and we hadn't really done a whole lot of business with them. And normally, most companies would have thought this was an enormous opportunity and would have jumped at it and would have dropped everything. It happened to be at that particular time that we literally didn't have the resources to tackle it. And I think there have been previous RFPs where at the same time we didn't have those resources, but we decided to drop everything anyway, did not win those RFPs for obvious reasons. We didn't have the resources to be as good as we could have possibly been and, and may have turned in something that was destined to not win the day. But you have to make the hard choice when you don't have the resources, whether it's financial or whether it's staffing or, or really just expertise, that you don't do it. And there's no shame in declining an RFP. Probably eight out of ten times it's the right decision. 
but again, those dollar signs sometimes make you make choices that do not make the most sense in hindsight. Yeah. Quick question, changing gears here. David, I'm curious about something that you said a comment or two ago about the challenge that some smaller distributors have in terms of bringing their business to the next level, separating themselves from that of the business. Can you elaborate on some of those more typical challenges that they face in order to bring the business from, say, one person to five people, ten people? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when people are getting started in the business, they generally take on all the roles. I mean, you're the salesperson, you're the collections person, you're the gopher who has to take the checks to the bank. You're doing everything. And so what a lot of people do when they're getting started in a business like that by themselves is they sort of weave a business around themselves, with yep. themselves at the center, and they almost create sort of a cocoon around themselves with them at the center of the vortex. And so when they want to grow the business, they say, well, how do I do this now? Because I'm already doing everything, and the customers yep. are used to talking to me, and they're in the middle of it. Hmm. So the biggest challenge is saying, okay, well, who or what can I hire next and how can I start breaking out of this? Because ideally, if you're a business owner, you don't want to be inside the cocoon. You want to be above and slightly to one side or other looking down on it and going, see that down there? That's my business. It works yeah. without me. Yep, yep. Those are two really different things. Yep. So I, I think that's the biggest challenge is first saying, okay, how do I extricate myself from this? And in, in my situation, because I started out doing it that way as well, I was the, the primary salesperson in my organization, and when it became time to grow, I did exactly the wrong thing. I hired another salesperson. So now we have two people who know how yeah. to do the same thing, yeah. and we still don't have anyone who can do a lot of the other important stuff that needed to get done. But the one thing that did work out well about that is that I was able to delegate a lot of the accounts that I had mm. to that salesperson, and then I was able to go out and start to do some of the other functions, perform some of the other functions, and start to hire other people who could perform some of the other functions. Mm. But it really involves tearing open that cocoon, coming out of there, and, and starting to rebuild. Right. And do you find that there are some people that like the idea of having a business, but they can't get there? Do you find that there that there's a portion of people out there that you work with that are just not able to delegate or what they really, really want to be at the end of the day is just a salesperson? And that even though they love the idea of the entrepreneur and they love the idea of being a business owner, they just really can't wrap their heads around doing all those other things that are required to run a successful business. Yeah, absolutely. And it goes back to years and years ago, I read the original book, The E-Myth by yeah. Michael Gerber. It's, yeah. it's been redone a time or two. But in, in that original book, I mean, that whole concept resonated so much with me at the time, and it still does to this day. And it's the idea that Gerber says entrepreneurs don't start businesses. Businesses are started by technicians suffering from an entrepreneurial seizure. Yes. It's, it's a great book, isn't it? It's a, it's a beautiful book. It's, he's, uh, I'm a technician. I'm a salesperson. And therefore, I think that Operating a business that sells is the same thing as selling, and it's not. Mm. Because operating a business that sells also involves all the other aspects of it that I might not enjoy doing. I think, you know, like a plumber is probably a better example. If I think I, if I'm good at plunging toilets, right, and I think, well, I could operate my own plumbing business, failing to realize that you're talking about overhead and inventory and hiring and uh, all that sort of stuff that has absolutely nothing to do with what they perceive, what the technician perceives as the actual work of the business. Yeah, yeah. Robert, when you and Danny were starting Brand Fuel, did you know from day one that you wanted to build it into a business, or were you not really sure what the heck you were doing when you first started out? 
Well, th those are two distinct questions, right? Um, uh, <laughs> you still don't know what you're uh, doing, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, right. You can't answer that yet. No, we, we knew we wanted to build it into a business. We had some, uh, some initiative and, and really wanted to see this thing work. You know, when we started it, we had two very, and, and still have two very distinct personalities and skill sets, and he was to be the kind of the sales guy, and I was kind of to be the operations guy and you know David I'm sure as you consult with folks uh, in, in, in what you do you run into this a lot you know oftentimes those roles change and morph over time and so it became evident in our experience that we both could sell and that there was a lot of value in having both of us sell and so we moved towards that but it left a a gap there on the operations side that uh, you know we had to address and sometimes still have to address and so yeah, I think we knew what we wanted, and we thought we had a roadmap to get there, but life gets in the way, and business gets in the way, and things change, and you, you make decisions and choices, and you end up where you end up. But yeah, we're, we're still trying to figure out who we are. I know from my experience in the earlier days of Right Sleeve, where I was exactly like you, David, I was the sole uh, salesperson, I was the founder. I thought I was pretty good at finance and and marketing and and technology and order production and all that stuff. And and even though I knew I wanted to separate the business from myself, I didn't know how hard it was going to be. And what was interesting is that I found my first hire was actually not too bad. It was a customer service person, and then I hired a salesperson, and that wasn't too bad either. But where things started to become a little bit uglier was when I hired person four and five and six. And that's when the wheels really started to come off the bus several years ago. We didn't really have any systems. And then for me, when things were starting to go off the bus, I would then revert back into my problem-solving founder salesperson mentality and then started to alienate the higher four, five, and six. So there was real tension there. So that's my experience. But throw it back at you, David, with a question. When you find your salespeople, like let's say you inspire a salesperson to go and grow their business, are they coming back to you like I might have come back to you at sort of higher four and five and say, okay, now I'm really struggling with something entirely different. <laughs> I'm really hitting, hitting a wall here. They do, yeah, and and certainly not all of them, because one of the first things that I do when someone talks about growing their business is I ask them, well, where do you see this thing in five years? Where do you yeah. see yourself in five years? Yeah, good question. Do you want to be the primary salesperson in the organization? Do you want to be driving the sales, or do you want to be the business owner separate and apart? And so depending on their view, that's going to impact what I recommend to them, because mm. there are people who just like to sell. Mm. Uh, I did consulting a number of years ago for a company in New Jersey, and one of the owners was just exceptional at bringing new customers through the door, mm. but really lacked the attention span and the follow-through to be able to service all those accounts. So rather than taking the traditional approach of, I'm the sales rep, I have to do it all from selling it to you know writing up the orders and processing the orders and going back and doing all that kind of stuff. Instead, what we had him do is hire administrative assistants yeah. who were trained on that and, and eventually customer service people who were trained to be able to do that and to be able to follow up with the customer so that he could just go out, kick down the doors, bring in the new business. And then he had people internally who were able to really maintain those relationships better than he might have been able to do right. and uh, continue to grow the business that 
that way. Right. Just one quick question along those lines for mm -hmm. David. I think you're moving from sort of the new folks starting out in the industry to maybe somebody who's been there five years and has, has started the business and it's, he or she has been able to maintain it. At what stage do you find the folks that, that you consult with? At what stage do you find that they have a, a hard time moving from sort of the birthing stage, the, the first stage to the stage where they have created a company that not only can maintain itself and sort of keep itself going, but, but actually starts to make good money on a consistent basis. Because I think one challenge that a lot of companies that make that leap from the, the first stage to the next stage, they oftentimes find that throwing money at the problem is, is the thing that's going to, to solve it. And so they create this cycle of, of higher growth, throw money at it, and not the thing that you would expect from that. You wouldn't, you'd expect the higher dollars, the higher profits, but oftentimes they're, they're throwing money at it and it's not creating those additional profits that they had hoped for. At what stage do you see these folks typically fall into that trap? Or, or is it something that, is, is, that they've got to tackle through their entire life cycle? It's something that they've got to fight? Yeah, I think largely it is something that occurs at nearly every stage. I mean, in the very early stages, I mean, people start running into that problem almost immediately. <laughs> you made your first couple of sales, there are some people who run into that almost immediately. But if you look at any of the sort of the benchmarks along the way, when, when someone gets to a quarter of a million dollars in sales, it's like, okay, I could really use some help, but I'm not sure what kind of help to get, and I can't really afford help, that type of thing. When you get to half a million, it gets a little easier to be able to say, okay, well, now I've got some, you know, I've got a little bit of money that I can use to maybe hire some, some help. When they get to a million dollars or more, by that point, usually they have some kind of help. Although, I mean, I have clients who do a million dollars plus a year who really function primarily by themselves. I mean, and they're, they're able to do it. And I, I ask them how. <laughs> you know, yeah. How are you doing that? Because for me, I, I needed help earlier on. Yeah. And, uh, and I generally recommend getting help before you really think you need it, before it's absolutely desperate, particularly if you're looking to build the kind of business that you can ultimately sell. Yeah. Because if, if I am the business, if I, let's say I'm doing a million dollars a year and I'm great at it and I can you know, keep all the balls in the air and everything's going great, if I ever want to sell that, how am I going to do it? I mean, who's going to buy a business that's entirely dependent on me being at the center of it? Yep. And the answer to that question is nobody. So that's why I think it's so important up front to find out what do you want this business to be? What are your goals for it? So yep. for people who are doing that sort of thing, when they do get to the point where they say, okay, I've been doing this for a long time, I've been generating great income, but now I, I don't know how to extricate myself. You know, I'd like to have maybe a three-year plan or a five-year plan for being able to potentially sell this if I wanted to do that. At that point, it really becomes a process of isolating what they are doing, finding out who they could get to help them to do the things that they are doing. And it, it may take two or three people to replace them, but at that point, they would have something that is actually saleable. Got it. Switching gears here for a moment, David, one of the things that you hear a lot today, and particularly if you're, let's say, looking at any social media groups like a LinkedIn group or a Facebook group or whatever the case may be, is it almost seems like every third or fourth post is someone asking for advice on how to compete with for imprint and their pricing structure. And when I say for imprint, I'm not necessarily trying to single them out. I would say really more just really any low margin online or aggressively priced online player. So the question is usually like, 
help, my client has found such and such a product on forimprint.com or epromos.com or branders or whatever the case may be. There is absolutely no way that I can compete with this price. Does anyone have any advice? If someone were to come to you with that question, what would you tell them? Well, I do get that question a lot, not specifically about for imprint, but I do get that question a lot related to websites, online selling. And the first thing I tell them is you need to understand, first of all, that it really is a different business model than a traditional distributorship. Hmm. Uh, if you think about sort of Amazon versus Barnes & Noble, and this may not be a great analogy, but I think it, it makes a point. Let's say you, you're a, an avid book reader and you just love books and you love the smell of books and you love the feel of books and uh, not necessarily Kindle. It doesn't feel as good as a regular book for people who really love books, but right, you, right. you know what I'm saying. So you, yep. if, if, you really, if, you, if you're looking for the whole book experience, you're going to want to walk into an actual bookstore and maybe talk to a human being. And let's say you strike up a conversation with someone who works there and you tell them what you're interested in and they say, oh, yeah, you know what, my book club just finished reading this great book. It sounds like just the thing you need. And they pick it up off the shelf and they bring it over and they hand it to you and you look at it and you thumb through it and you go, oh, man, this looks awesome. That's great. And the person's smiling and nodding and you're, you've achieved some sort of camaraderie. And then you say, okay, listen, I really appreciate it. And you fold it up, you put it back on the shelf. But you know what, I can get that for about a dollar cheaper on Amazon. Yep. Right? How often is that person going to make a recommendation to you? you know, probably not very often. I mean, that's going to be your first and last recommendation. Yep. And this is what seems to be happening a lot of times in the industry is that we have prospects, more so, I was going to say clients, but we have prospects more so than clients who will talk to us about something, they'll get our ideas, they'll go online, they'll shop it around, they'll find a lower price, mm. and then they'll come back and they'll say, can you beat this price? Yep. And yep. it's a lot harder to beat the price when you've done all the work yep. of coming up with the idea. Yep. Now, if it's just an apples and apples comparison, that's different. If somebody calls you and says, hey, I'm looking for item number such and such and this color imprint and this quantity and I'm looking for the cheapest price, well, then at that point, you're in a position where you can make the decision as to yep. whether or not you want to charge less. Right. But when you get that sort of ambush mentality going on, you really have to question, is that the type of client you want? Right. The other thing that I've sort of identified to differentiate these two things is there's a huge difference between the type of person who, if they want a deck on the back of their house, will go to Home Depot, buy a bunch of lumber and a bunch of nails, and start nailing that thing together, and the type of person who's going to pick up the phone and call a contractor to do it. Yeah, so, like me. Yeah, like <laughs> me too. There's no way I'm buying lumber, right? My hands are just too soft and delicate for that. Yeah. Now, Robert, on the other hand, is quite a handyman, so. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Exactly. So, so the question is, if you are a contractor, you're not targeting Robert. Right. right, You're targeting you and you're targeting me. And in every marketplace, there are people who are going to be better targets for us. And so I, I generally start with that, you know, the fact that it's, it's kind of different things. You're looking for the people who actually understand and appreciate the value you bring to the table. Mm -hmm. Those people are prospects. The people who are looking to nickel and dime you and comparison shop you against websites, which, again, it's a totally different business model. It's sitting there. It's on the web. They, they're not doing any of the work. Well, if you're not doing the work, then you don't have to get paid for that work, and your economies of scale are different and everything yeah. like that. Yeah, and I think there's many, many interesting examples. I think one of the favorite examples I like to cite when I think about running my business is Expedia versus a company like G Adventures or any of these outfits that put together experiences and adventures for you to go and ride elephants in Thailand and you know do cooking classes and all this stuff. Like you don't get that on Expedia, and 
there is not a chance that I would ever be buying the ticket, the uh, the plane ticket for Las Vegas that I'm taking tomorrow <laughs> from Toronto to Las mm-hmm. Vegas. I would mm-hmm. never buy that through some guy that I had to call up on the phone and say, "Can you give me a good price on this?" I would just go to Expedia. So it's the same. It's the same thing. And I think that the companies that get it, like the ones that really focus on that customer experience and really cater to the right kind of customer. It's interesting to me, but I really see that segment of the market growing just like we see the website transaction side of this business growing. And I think it's the people in the middle that are the ones getting squeezed, like the person who is asking, how do I compete with 4imprint? for this particular promotion. And I'm concerned that that's the kind of person who's going to get locked out because they're almost asking the wrong question. At least that's my perspective. I think you're right, Mark. You you do have some experiences where a client will call you or email you a link from one of said companies and say, hey, can can you match it or or what can you do? They want to do business with you. They like you, um, but uh, but they they want to make sure that they still get a good deal. Yeah, fair enough. I think the, the challenge is You've built a relationship with this person. They're willing to give you the kind of the last look, but it's still ultimately about price, it sounds like. Mm. That sort of dovetails into the whole idea of you know, what's been going on with margins in our industry. Obviously, over the course of the past, several, well, in the last year or two in particular, in the most recent State of the Industry report, it, you know, the sales went up, but gross profits took a hit. And gross profits as of the previous year were, were down to a point where they were before uh, you know, or, or right around the time, or even before the time in 2008, when when the industry took a, a real hit in gross sales. Mm. So there's that whole profitability hit that people are taking, and a lot of people blame the internet, you know, blame being the operative word there. But I think too much inclination to want to cave into that pressure is really what it results in. Mm. If you've got a good client, you talked about establishing relationships. Robert mentioned establishing relationships with people and and, and them allowing you know allowing you to have the last word. I agree with that, and, and I, I love the idea that they're doing that, but I think that if there is a solid relationship there, then you may be able to say to the client, well, you know, I, you know, I hope you understand this is really, it's a different business model. I mean, these aren't the people who are coming to you with the recommendations. They're not crafting these promotions for you, and so you know, we've got different, different structures, different infrastructures, that type of thing. How important is it to you that you get the lowest price on this order as opposed to being able to get the benefit of our experience and what we're, we're able to help? What, what you're really asking is, is what I bring to the table important enough to you to pay for it? Mm. And then the answer becomes yes or no. You know what? I think that's brilliant, actually. I've never really heard it stated like that. But imagine, I don't know, Robert, whether you've ever had a conversation with a client like this, but I I mean, I know that we've certainly had variations of this conversation, but imagine asking a client, what is more important, a low price or the experience that I bring to the table? Because there's no way out of that question, right? The client's going to fumble and they, some may get upset and think that you're attacking them and others may be forced to say, you know what? That's a great question. Uh, low price. (laughs) <laughs> and yeah, others will say, well, you know what, it, it is actually low price, but hang on a second here, you know, don't go, not so fast, and and I, I think it's really fascinating, because I think when a client is asked a question like that, it's almost like you corner them to some extent, in a respectful way, and you get them to show their true colors, and I think that's all we really want as distributors, and I think suppliers want this as well, is to know the true colors. Because so many buyers hide them, they're smoke and mirrors, and you're not wasting your time if you know that what they want is low prices. And heck, if you're Amazon, well, that's a great client to have. Amazon doesn't really want that high-touch, high-maintenance, picky client. 
<laughs> they can't deal with them. So I love that question. Uh, it, ultimately, it probably makes you better at what you do, right? And, you know, maybe your original strategy of getting clients was throwing darts, and now you're getting some pushback on pricing, and you can determine whether that's really the right client for you. But, you know, it's, it's, it's about providing that value, and, and is are you providing that additional value that they're willing to, to pay for? And if they're mm-hmm. coming to you with the ideas from one of these sites, um, you may not know the client very well, and that's an impetus to get better at what you do. I view it less as cornering the client and more as requalifying the client. Yeah, yeah, well said. We need to do that on an ongoing basis. We need to find out. I mean, just because someone was qualified to buy from us a year ago doesn't mean they're qualified to buy from us today. And so when you ask a question like that, it's basically designed to to find out, are we are we still in tune? Are we still compatible? And if the yeah. answer is yes, then we figure out a way to move forward. And it may be that I could say to them, well, you know, I can't match the price, but if, if it's a particularly tough order or whatever, if you've got a, a limited budget, you know, I might be able to help you a bit. And you might be able to concede on it a little if you decide you want to do that and if it makes sense for the relationship. But, right. you know, the idea of matching someone else's price, if you're to think about that in sort of um, – personal circumstances it's you know like uh, you go home to the missus and hey honey you know I saw this girl at the trade show the other day and <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, I, I don't know it just doesn't fly yeah I don't, I don't think that would work too well in my in my household <laughs> no. uh, maybe it's a different view Robert but <laughs> yeah I, I, the door would be locked yep oh gosh um, I thought of this question David what formerly bulletproof sales tactics that worked, say, let's say 10 years ago, are dead today in 2015? Well, I think high-pressure sales tactics are certainly dead. Yeah. And they used to be very effective because people didn't know that you shouldn't be treated that way a long time. Maybe not 10 years ago. It's probably longer than 10 years ago. Right. But I know when I was getting my early training in sales, I read books like Zig Ziglar's Secrets of Closing the Sale. And he wasn't, well, he, I don't think he'd call it high pressure, but a lot of what was in there was designed to not take no for an answer. And that may lean into another thing that I think was a formerly bulletproof sales tactic that now I think is largely dead, and that's manipulative sales closes. Yeah. Things that are designed to pen you in and get you into a corner, and things that at the time, you know, back in the 70s and 80s seemed really cutting edge, and you hear it now and you just cringe. And some of it can still be used effectively, but it's, it's no substitute for selling. I mean, the alternative choice close was, it was always, you know, one of the favorites. It's, uh, you're not giving them the choice between a yes and a no, you're giving them the choice between something and something else. So if you're talking to them about a promotion, you know, first it would be, so you're looking more at wearables or you're looking more at ceramics and mugs, that type of thing. What do you, you know, what, what appeals to you more? And then when you get, get it down to the mug, it's like, well, do you prefer the, this or the that? You want it in the red or the gold? And you just do this series of comparisons so that it's, it's yes or yes versus yes or no. And, what a lot of people did was they took those sales tactics and they thought that was what selling was. In other words, they took a particular tactic and they applied it to to the business and said, this is what you do, as opposed to here's something that you can potentially use in an otherwise good conversation <laughs> with a prospect to help, you know, help close it down. Right. So I think those two things, high pressure, manipulative sales tactics are certainly dead and while I would say that in-person selling is far from dead, there are a lot of people who just no longer seem to want to practice it. 
and people seem to, particularly in the last 10 years, they really love the idea of replacing personality with technology and saying, you know, you can go to this website and you can order it, and then I can sit here and watch TV or something. Mm. And so I think that that whole in-person experience is to some extent being lost. And what I haven't yet really seen done well in our industry is a, a real solid integration of the people with the technology. I mean, to be able to go to a website and perhaps have an interaction, like a real interaction with someone, and I, I know it's being experimented with, but at this point, I have not seen anyone who's perfected that. So for the person who wants to have a real-life experience with a real-life human being, but you know maybe they're not located in the same town or whatever, to be able to go to a website, maybe click on a link, have a screen open up, and be able to talk to someone that you could actually establish a relationship with, that, I think, would be more of a threat to anything that we're dealing with in the industry right now. Yeah, it's almost like integrating Google Hangouts into your website and then having uh, phenomenal personalities on the company side and, and you just allow people to interact. And it's almost like chat 2.0. Yeah, exactly. And someone's going to listen to this podcast and go, oh, man, okay, we're doing that. <laughs> right? yeah, that's right. Well, hey, <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> you're welcome. Ah, <laughs> oh, free. Oh. Okay, but, you know, as far as that, that whole point is concerned, I mean, if you think about it, one of the things that I had isolated, and I talk about this in, in a lot of my training sessions, is I've identified five primary levels of promotional product sales. So the level one, the lowest level, is that of the order taker. If you mm. come to me and say, like, a thousand pens, white pens with a red imprint, I can get that done for you. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to recommend anything to you. I just take the order. So there are a lot of people in our industry who are just order takers. That's all they do, and, and that's their job. The second level up is the level of the, the product seller or the product peddler when they don't sell particularly well. But the product seller is the person that if, if you come to me and you say, hey, I've got an event coming up, what do you recommend? I can recommend some products to you and uh, you can pick one of those products and then I can take your order. So I'm doing level two and level one. But then when we get like to the third, fourth, and fifth levels, that's where historically, to date, it's been harder for technology companies to compete. The third level is that of the relationship marketer or the relationship seller. These are the people that everybody loves. The backslappers, the people when you see them, it's like, hey, how you doing? Great to see you. You know, that type of thing. In the old TV show, Cheers, whenever Norm would enter the bar, it was always, Norm! <laughs> everybody would wave to him. And, you know, that relationship type thing. And there, there are people who are very good at establishing relationships, but... If they haven't mastered the other levels, they're making friends, but they're not making sales. But when you have somebody who's great at establishing relationships and they're able to recommend intelligent, make intelligent product recommendations and then take orders for that, they can actually make some money. But then the next level up from that would be that of the consultative seller. And these are the people who are able to connect the dots between what the customer actually wants, like increased sales or employee retention or whatever it is that they want. They can connect the dots between that and the promotion and ultimately the products that can get that done. So consultative sellers are in a situation where they can actually get business from people who didn't even know they needed or wanted to buy promotional items because they've successfully connected the dots between those two things. Hmm. And, and then the top level, in my opinion, is, is that of the customer acquisition and retention specialist, the person who focuses every aspect of what they do on the getting and the keeping of customers. So if I'm doing product research, it's for the purpose of getting and keeping customers. If I'm networking, it's for the purpose of getting and keeping customers. If I'm sending out an invoice, it's for the purpose of getting and keeping a customer. So if I'm sending out an invoice for the purpose of getting paid, or if I'm doing a collections call for the purpose of getting paid, that collection call might sound something like, 
hey, where's my money, right? Mm -hmm. But if I'm doing a collections call with the purpose of customer acquisition and retention, retaining a customer, that call is going to be more like, uh, hey, haven't heard from you in a while. I want to make sure you got your stuff and that everything worked out well and the promotion went well. And I just wanted to get an idea of when we might be able to see some payment on that. Mm. <laughs> Same kind of message, but when right. you've got the focus right, the whole approach changes. Right. And to date, when, when my sort of brick-and-mortar clients say I have trouble competing, what I tell them is, look, you focus on those top three levels, the relationships, the consulting, and the customer acquisition and retention. And then the question is not, how do I compete with websites? The question at this point is, how can websites possibly compete with me? Yeah. That's great. I love that. We should put a link on the site to those five levels so that people can see that written out. Robert, why don't we give you the opportunity for the last question because I've had a number of questions in here and I'm just taking a look at the time and that we should be probably winding down. Robert, take it. Well, David, I have a series of somewhat whimsical questions. Are you willing to play along with me? Absolutely. I will attempt to give you whimsical answers. <laughs> <laughs> All right. These, uh, these will just be a, a several uh, very quick, short questions and we're hoping for one-word answers. Okay. So right, you're no, a Pennsylvania. If anything truly embarrassing, you can cut that out, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> of we course. Life and die. Okay, so you're a Pennsylvania guy, right? Yes. Eagles, Phillies, Sixers, or Flyers? I'll say Eagles. Nice. On the music front, John or Paul? Oh. <laughs> do I have to do this fast? <laughs> oh man, that's that's unfair. <laughs> oh, John was so edgy, but Paul. I mean, you know, Paul had so many more that I loved. I, I'm going to have to go, Paul, and I feel badly about it. Ah, that's so funny because uh, that is often the response that people give. And finally, finally, number three, Sage or ESP. <laughs> I got You're you're really on a on a. An industry you don't podcast, you're going to call me out on this. You Is that right? That Mark, does he have to answer that one? He, he can do whatever he wishes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, uh, I've got to go ESP. In my promotional products business, I used ESP. I took a tour one time of, of ASI, and I saw this area where they had all these people keying in information, and it cost more, but it seemed to always have much more up-to-date information possible that's changing, but if you're going to press me, i got to say it. Fair enough. Fair enough, David. Thanks for playing. Okay. Fantastic. You're in trouble, man. Oh, no, not at all. And, 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 of course, the purpose of any of these questions is not to, you know, suggest that there are any particular allegiances to anyone and reminding people that on the, on the podcast that we're, we're an independent entity and, and, and have enjoyed really wonderful relationships with all of the people in the industry. So, with that, David, I think we're going to have to schedule certainly another time where we can dig into some of these uh, themes in a little bit more detail, but this was a wonderful overview. I know that the people who are listening on, to this podcast will certainly be very, very lucky to participate in your wisdom and experience, and on behalf of Robert and myself, really wanted to thank you for taking the time with us here today. Well, thank you so much. I, mean, I One of the reasons that I really wanted to do this is that I knew you wouldn't let me off the hook. I knew you'd be asking me some, some really good, solid, probing questions, and, uh, and that makes for a much more interesting conversation. Well, Robert gets the prize for that. You know, I was the nice guy. You were the mean one. Right. It's an honor to be on this call with both of you all. You're true professionals. Thank you. All right, gentlemen. Thank you so much. That was great.